0: Please turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking at a text of Scripture that many of us are probably familiar with. But one thing that I want to really zero in on is the fact that many of us miss the point of the text many times. We miss the point of the text because what we do is we take snippets of this chapter and start working on those things, and then we'd miss the rest of the context. So as we start this morning, I want to ask a question and then I wanna really kind of dive into the text here. How many of you, when you've been growing up, and particularly when you've been uh, an adult, you've heard a lot of things about what it means to be successful? You've heard a lot of things that tell you, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to be in order to be successful. Follow these five steps, and you will get what you want in life. You've read books like this, you've heard lectures like this, and in all of those things, it's a pull yourself by your bootstraps type of mentality that's been pushed. What if I was to say that Scripture completely inverts that paradigm and Jesus actually says, being last makes you first? Being last makes you first. We're going to look at four things here in the text. Number one, the question, verses 33 through 34. Number two, the illustration, verses thirty-five through thirty-seven. Number three, the warning, verses forty-two through forty-eight, and number four, the admonition, verses forty-nine through fifty. So, number one, the question. We're going to be reading verses thirty-three and thirty-four. Here's what it says: Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road?" But they kept silence, for on the road they had disputed among themselves. Who would be the greatest? You see, if you read the other accounts in Matthew 18 and Luke 9, we see that the disciples had a dispute or a debate, if you will, behind the scenes about who is the greatest in the kingdom. One day, they believed that there would be a literal kingdom that they would reign with Christ. And they were debating between each other who would be the greatest in that kingdom. To the point where Jesus really here is making a statement, asking them a question, going, what were you all debating about? What was that whole discussion about? What's interesting is that many of us as followers of Jesus do the very same thing that the disciples did here. Though we won't go out and openly debate this, um, if you were to find how we respond to people that challenge who we are, we see that many times we want to be greater than others claim that we are. And we're going to take a look at some of that this morning. What's interesting is that many followers of Jesus really actually believe that he came to this earth, died, was buried, and rose again. But they don't believe that he literally will return one day to reign on this earth. They believe that he reigns right now in our hearts. The interesting part is when you look at the disciples, they believed in a literal kingdom, not a figurative one. They believed that there was literally a kingdom that was going to be ushered right there by Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus will return one day for his own and that we will one day reign with him. Literally. There will be a gathering of the church in the second coming of Christ. The debate here between the disciples may very well have been what Peter, James, and John saw in the transfiguration that the rest of them did not see. You see, what they ended up probably doing is saying, look, we got to see Jesus in his glory. The rest of you all did not get that. You didn't get that privilege that we did. So we're probably greater because we've had a better experience here than you have. To them, one of the greatest things that mattered to them was really being called the greatest in the kingdom. Being called the greatest was the most important to them. Because at the end of the day, they wanted to know that Jesus is reigning and I'm right there with him. I'm right alongside of him. I'm special. I'm unique. I'm better than the rest. What is interesting is when Jesus asked them the question, this is something that I think many of us, uh, we really haven't really thought through this. It's almost as if a father's looking at his boys fighting in the yard. He knows they were fighting about something. And then he goes up to him and says, what were you fighting about? Nothing. See, I have three boys. I know that happens. And the reality is, is that Jesus is trying to get them to think about what they just disputed. And Jesus wants us to also think about those things. I want to point out that we actually do the same things many times without realizing it. In fact, we all fight to be the greatest, whether we admit it or not. It might not be a literal war of words, but our actions can't deny that's how we actually feel. We constantly try to prove to at least ourselves that we're better than another Christian in the church. At least to ourselves, we try to prove that. That God is more pleased with us than maybe the other disciple that's following him. We elevate our status above others and at times do claim humility while at the same time really struggling with pride. Let's stop and unpack this a little bit. Though we may not have been disciples during this time, have we not had different experiences when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ? Have we not walked different paths? And sometimes what ends up happening is some of us elevate our experience about someone else's and we do, based on that experience, I must be a greater disciple. I must be a better follower of Christ. And let me me warn you, believer, that's not how you gauge whether you're the best or whether you're the greatest. And here's the thing, though we would never word it this way, when it comes down to it, we don't like that sometimes someone else's needs are met before ours. We want ours to be met first. That's why we actually, without thinking it or saying it sometimes, we internalize it and we really think we're greater than somebody else. You know, we, we, we say statements like this. Well, it must have been nice. They got that nice, that nice promotion in their job. I've been working for years. I don't know why I would, didn't get that. Must be nice. Remember, Philippians 2.3 says this simply. says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, this thinking that we are greater comes in many different forms, including a false humility. See, a lot of people that pretend to be very pious in the church, they have a false humility. If you read any of history, you'll see that a lot of, a lot of the church throughout the centuries has struggled with this false humility that's been portrayed, where people would give people a certain persona, and in reality, is hypocrisy was revealed later on, that that's not really who they are. You see, sometimes we make arguments like this. I must be walking closer to God. They don't have anywhere near the struggles I do. How many of you have ever used that excuse? Like, I have real struggles. I must be really doing something right. Well, have you ever considered this? And I want to stop for a second. I know I've said this to a few of you before. Maybe it's your foolishness that got you in trouble, not because you're walking with God consistently. Like, maybe that debt wasn't a God thing. That was you being stupid. Maybe you shouldn't go blaming everybody else. And taking on the badge of being a Christ follower through and through, though you disobeyed him in very practical ways. You see, this is a big one, because many a follower of Christ are still actually babies, and they don't even realize it. In fact, Paul actually talks to a whole church and calls a lot of them babies when he writes them the letter. Just because you think you're more mature than you are does not make you mature. Just because you think you're mature doesn't make you mature. I mean, remember, when you were little children, right, we all had certain things we wanted to be as adults, right? I want to be a firefighter, police officer, I mean, I wanted to be a hockey player, <laughs> so much for that. But, you know, you wanted to be something, right? But did that make you that because you wanted to be that? No. But see, sadly, that's what happens in the Christian life. We, we assume, hey, hey, I, I, wa- I, I really think I'm mature, but are you? That's the question, are you, am I? A mature disciple of Christ knows the deceptive nature of his heart, and he surrenders to the word of God rather than their feelings. So here's some practical ways we're going to just take a look at really quick. Are you mature or are you still a baby in Christ, right? First of all, babies don't listen, all right? How many of you have ever had a child, especially a small child? Hopefully they get a little better as they age, right? But babies, they don't listen. They don't, right? Right? Like, you try to give them instructions, a new infant is just not gonna listen. Doesn't matter how many good theology you wanna pump into their brain, it's not gonna happen. God says you're a sinner. <laughs> still doesn't matter. They're still gonna scream. And see, here's the thing, Paul tells the church of Corinth, I want to talk to you like mature people, but you're still babies. You don't listen. Babies want what they want, and they'll keep demanding until they get what they want. Because their feelings are hurt that they're not getting what they want right now. I want to eat this right now. I mean, this is what goes through a mind of a baby, right? I want my passing now. I want my nap now. I'm screaming because you're not paying attention to me. Now, let's translate this to the local church, okay? Let's, 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 let's dig in here. And as uncomfortable as this might seem it comes from a spiritually infant mindset. Maybe you've been guilty of saying this, maybe I have as well. No one seems to care about me in this church. No one pays attention to me. That person or family gets all the attention, no one cares about my needs or wants. Don't they know I have needs too? Now here's a question, can this be true? I mean, can a church not care for its people? Of course it can. Of course it can. I'm not in any way arguing that that's not true. But what usually happens is the complaint is actually usually brought up to somebody else that's a spiritual babe in in their faith as well. And the two only make it worse. They never bring it to the leadership of the church. They whine and complain behind the scenes. Imagine with me if babies cried to one another to help each other out. Where would that go? Have you ever seen anybody just, any infants just get together and really have a wonderful time without mom? Never happens, right? Because they need a mature adult. Imagine if they said, hey, I can only crawl, you can only crawl, I need to get into bed, but we can't help each other. (laughs) Just, we can only crawl, mom has to pick us up and put us in bed. And see, that's something that we have to consider many times. It's quite heartbreaking, honestly, how petty some of us can be. Because when it comes to the family of God in the context of the local church, I want to give you an illustration, I really thought through this, and and, and it was very convicting when I thought about it. How many of you, you, you have family and friends, right, close friends that you haven't seen for a while, you haven't talked to them in a while, right? Like, you see them once a year maybe for holidays. You know what you don't do when you see them on holidays? Well, you didn't talk to me for three, four months, how dare you, you must not care about me. Guess what we do in the church? I haven't seen you for two, three months. That church doesn't care about me. We're assuming all the worst about the church, but we give this pass to our regular family and friends, and we connect right where we left off. Why is that? Why is it that people that we know in our everyday life that we've been close to, we understand they're busy, they have a lot of things going on, but when it comes to the church, we somehow feel a need to be offended. Why is that? We can't wait to see our brother, sister, mother, grandmother, right? We haven't seen them in a while. We haven't talked to them in a while. Does that mean they don't care about us and we don't care about them? Of course they do. Of course we do. But why is it that when we are apart from the family of God, we start having these really strange thoughts that, frankly, are demonic? They're from Satan himself. That everybody's out to get me. They don't care. Some of you I don't see for a while. I see you back in. I'm thrilled that you're back. And I promise you, just because someone hasn't talked to you the other week does not mean we don't care. We do. And we miss you. That's why the local gathering is so important. For those of you online, please join us if you can. Here's something else that happens. We become so cynical to our church because we like it in a new church we just attended. In fact, this is something that I hear often from many people from different churches. I visited this church, man, they felt made me feel very welcome, much better than my church. I want you to stop and consider a couple things before you, you, you run fully into that being the better scenario for you. First of all, do you know what that, teacher, that church teaches? Do you know the doctrine that they hold to? Because if you don't check their doctrine, what you may end up doing is falling into a trap. In fact, a mature believer knows what kind of food they eat. So they realize that, hey, what passes off as a great church today may just be junk food that makes me feel good. That's not what I need. Oh, there are plenty of churches that will make you feel good. Plenty. I don't know that they're actually preaching all of the Bible because not all the Bible makes you feel good. Last time I checked, there's a lot of serious stuff about sin and how we have to kill it daily in the Bible. So start off, like, what does that church believe, right? What about this? I don't know if you ever consider this. You're new to that church. Does that not have a possibility of maybe the reason why you feel welcome? You're a brand new person that just entered that church. Guess what every church wants to do with somebody that's new that comes in? We want to welcome them. Thank you for coming. We're glad you're here with us. But you know what ends up happening as in any church over time, and you've probably seen this in your relationships. Maybe I'm the only one, but maybe you, you have this experience as well. A lot of relationships start off wonderful. They're beautiful. You assume the best about people. You think they're the greatest thing. And then as they get to know you and you get to know them, it just, you start rubbing each other the wrong way. It's not so fun anymore. I don't know if I should be here. So-and-so said this, and I really know who they are now. They're not as perfect as I thought they were. What a shock. Sinners in church. We're called to be saints, of course, but does that not mean that we sin? Of course we still sin. I'm sure no one's ever had great assumptions about you that you later on disappointed, right? That's only me, right? See, here's the thing. Babies also only whine or fight about things. You never see a group of little infants peacefully playing together, right? Why do you think you need nursery workers? Ah, they'll be fine. Leave them in there. Nothing will get torn up. They won't hurt each other. Something's always bound to happen. You and I know that's true. But why? Why is that the case? It's very simple. They're not mature. They're not at that stage to understand. You see, spiritual babies in the church only fight and whine about what they wish was different. Mature believers care about the unity of the body and ultimately around the truth found in God's word, not their own preferences or feelings. You think spiritual believers don't ever have their feelings hurt? You think Jesus never had his feelings hurt? You don't think Paul ever had his feelings hurt? You think people in the Bible that were mature did not have their feelings hurt or disappointed or frustrated or overwhelmed by something? they did in fact Jesus it broke his heart for Jerusalem that they rejected him the difference is the mature believer understands that maybe they don't understand what's going on and that's why they responded that way and the petty stuff they just let it go they're going, well, that, that, that person just had an off day. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to understand that that happened. And it's fine. They didn't mean anything ill towards me. In the grand scheme of things, that was nothing. Why am I making a big deal out of that? So, so here's my question. Are you getting it yet? Are you understanding what we're talking about here? Jesus is saying, none of us is more special or greater And if we want to be that way, we've got to humble ourselves, because we have to start at the bottom, not at the top. In fact, it gets to the point where the disciples do ask the question of Jesus. You see that in another text in Matthew. And they ask the question of Jesus, who actually is the greatest in the kingdom? And this is where Jesus uses a child for the illustration. The illustration, verses 35 through 37, look what it says in the text. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. What's interesting here is Jesus teaches the disciples that greatness in the kingdom is defined by service to the least of these. A child during the time of Christ was actually of low significance in their society, whether it was the Roman society or Jewish society. What Jesus does in using the child as an illustration is to point out the greatness in the kingdom of God is marked by ones whose service is there for the most insignificant among them. In fact, you become insignificant so you can serve the insignificant. What did Jesus do on our behalf? He humbled himself to rescue man. The point is to serve the least, you need to become the least. And that's exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. A king became a servant to serve man who was created to worship him. We let God exalt us while we humble ourselves before others, just as Jesus did on our behalf. We welcome those that can't do anything for us and reach out to them just as Jesus reached out to us who couldn't do anything for him. Here's what's daring for us to do, and I want you to consider this. Find those in our church community or family that really can't do much for you and serve them. Be daring. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Serve that way. And I want us to take a look at this next text right here. Number three, the warning. Because this really ties in. This ties in right here. Verses 42 through 48. Look at what it says. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I want you to understand, believer, that this this text right here follows right after the importance of service. It's connected, it's not disconnected. And what ends up happening is we preach sermons that separate these things. And it's one passage. And what Jesus is doing here is he's using the child as an illustration. He says, if you cause this little one, and ultimately he says it in Matthew, one that believes in me to stumble, it's better for you to drown. It's better for you to drown than deal with what happens later before having done something like that. Jesus has strong words for those that cause his little ones to stumble. Jesus breaks it down to tell the disciples that those who do not humble themselves and serve, but rather use and abuse others, especially the insignificant, as this child that he used here in his illustration, it would be better for them if they had been executed early in a drowning than facing the judgment of hell, awaiting them, potentially. Potentially. The idea of causing little ones to stumble is to trip up, to cause to fall in their walk with God, possibly to cause them to sin. Now, I want you to consider the seriousness of this text. You see, a lot of us, we read these texts and go, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. I'm rescued. Let me tell you something, believer. I'm going to pause for a second and get back to this. Every warning of Scripture is there to motivate believers to walk more faithfully with God. The person that is regenerate knows how serious it is when Jesus warns about these things. The one that is not regenerate, the one that does not care for the things of God, will go on their way deceived and assume that this doesn't mean anything to me. It only applies to so-and-so because I know how they are. Without realizing it, there are things that you and I can do to trip up those that are newer in the faith. And ultimately, those that are children, that are new believers, if you will. And if we don't pay attention to that, then we're going to do certain things in the church context that actually harms our children rather than benefits them. We need to take this seriously. So what are some ways that maybe we have a potential to make somebody trip up, particularly a new believer, right? Well, here's one, allowing false doctrine to the church or your family. You don't think that has devastating consequences? You don't think that's dangerous to allow false doctrine into your church and into your family? The very definition of hell that we're reading can be defined on whether your doctrine's accurate or not. You see, a lot of people don't believe in that anymore. Most pastors today, God wants your best life now. He wants you to be successful now. We're not even going to mention the possibility of hell, because we're not even going to put that option out there for you. We're going to pretend it doesn't exist. After all, love wins, right? Everything stems from true or false doctrine. And doctrine simply is teaching. Biblical teacher or unbiblical teaching, it makes a difference. Everything to moral issues in our culture stems from what you view about doctrine. A lot of the churches that are allowing more and more of the world to influence them in their cultural stances on morality, they're not getting their text from the Bible. They're taking a psychologist, pulling that back into the Bible and warping it to make it seem like it's biblical. Because we need to be accepting and loving. And you're right, Jesus is accepting and he is loving, but he doesn't tolerate sin. That's the difference. For some reason, we leave that part out. Come as you are, leave as you you came. That's our motto in churches now. And if you leave any different, it's a shock. Here's another one, forsaking the assembly. Your parents don't think you can really make a big difference in your children's lives whether you forsake the assembly of believers? I can tell you right now, it's very easy to see which parents prioritized church and which parents didn't when you come to a church because their children follow in their footsteps. The generation before typically sets this tone for the next generation. And I'm talking about believers. Obviously, some of you came to faith later on. Your parents didn't go to church, really. I understand that. What I'm saying is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't you think forsaking the assembly would be a big area of possibly stumble for your children and those that are newer in the faith? You see, for a lot of people, church is optional. You know how optional it was for Jesus? He gave his life for the church. He gave his life for the church. It wasn't optional. We set the standard for our children in this. Most people neglect the family of God. Usually, they're probably not even in the Word of God because the Word of God would have told them to go meet with the family of God. Most people say, well, I don't need the church. I don't need to be in the family of God. That's not that important. If you were in the Word of God, the Word of God would tell you it's important to me. In fact, most of the New Testament's written to churches, not to individuals, churches. We've become so about a personal relationship with God that we forgot the communal relationship we have as a church. I don't need you telling me what I need to do in my life. I'm good. I've got the Bible. I'm fine. Tell that to the early church and tell me if you are living like they did. We're so much better in 21st century Christianity about our personal walk with God that we forgot that there's a community walk with God as well. Go look at the early church and tell me how much they were about personal every time. They gave up their riches for the benefit of the brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died for other believers that follow him as well. You have a community there that you neglect and ignore many times because you don't think it's important, you think it's optional. It's optional that I attend not that important. You just might be the prodigal that needs to get things right with God in this area, brother, sister. You need to come back into fellowship with him and his church. You see, the early church, when somebody left the community, it hurt. It doesn't hurt in our culture. You've got so many options out there. Pull up YouTube. You'll find a sermon pull up so-and-so, they'll, they'll, they'll be your church now, and you get to select what option you want. Pick out of the menu, here's what I really want to listen to today. I don't want to listen about hell and judgment. I want to love sermon. They didn't have that in the old days. We have so many options today. So many things on the buffet menu, as some, some pastor would say. It's buffet. I buffet my body. Right? Now, the reality is, is we have a text here in Scripture that calls us to being careful how we cause someone else to stumble. And many of us don't take this seriously at all. We're so concerned, quote unquote, about ourselves that we don't care about the example we're setting for others. We're so concerned about how we look like to others that we don't care about the reality of what we are exemplifying God to those around us and how we're exemplifying Him. The reality is, here's another one that's a big one in the church and ways we can cause a little one to stumble. Ultimately, those are new believers. Discouragement. You don't think unloading on somebody, your problems may not hurt them in their spiritual walk, potentially? A new believer that can't handle anything, you're going to give them all of that? You're going to tell them all the problems that you've been dealing with for 10 years in the church and you wonder why it may overwhelm them and cause them to stumble? Discouragement causes a person to stumble, particularly in ways that we don't even pay attention to. In fact, so many parents, they discourage their children because they either set the standard so high or it's not even there in their family. A child comes to church... Someone's trying to teach them the word of God, try to make, help them walk faithfully with Christ. Their families are not living that example at home. So what ends up happening is the child's discouraged. There's a conflict. It's not making sense. Mom and dad are doing this. Here's what pastor's saying, or the youth pastor's saying, or the church is saying, and I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to do here. Son, you go to church. I don't need to go to church. You need to memorize scripture. I don't need to memorize scripture. You don't think anybody can be discouraged with that inconsistency? If you've ever been around people that just complain and unload about everything in their life, you know what I'm talking about. There are two types of people in the church, and I like to call them the life givers and the life drainers, okay? Those are two types of people in the church. Whatever category you fall under doesn't mean you have to stay there, and hopefully if you're a life giver, you stay there, okay? but. You, you and I can, can kind of go from each one sometimes, right? Like the life givers, the, they share the truth of God's word. They deal with a lot of their heartaches, but they deal with it from a personal struggle and knowing that God is ultimately in control. He's working on me right now. There's things I don't understand. I don't know why I'm doing this. God was working on me. And they come out victorious because they know Jesus is still working on them and they're a work in progress and that he, they encourage others with that same truth when they stumble and they fall. Hey, brother, sister, you know, I know, I know, some people in the church probably have not mentioned anything to you, they haven't talked to you in a while, but I promise you that's happened with me too. Why don't, why don't, why don't we go out for a cup of coffee? Why, why don't we talk about this? Hey, brother, sister, you know, nobody reaches out to me either, but that's why I need to reach out to others. That's why. Then there's the life trainers, right? Hopefully you're not one of these. They share their personal struggles with us, but we get the impression that nothing ever goes right in their life, ever. Like, everything is doom and gloom, right? I know God is sovereign, but it's been a really, really bad week, and it's horrible again. I read the Word, but it didn't do anything for me this week. Well, what kind of heart did you read it with? did you read it for God to work on you and transform you or did you read it to kind of feel better because he checked off a list I did the reading they tell us they believe God is for them but they don't ever see it personally they're the perpetual eors as I've said before oh bother they drain us of any spiritual vitality that we may even have And we leave discouraged and many times depressed that we've spent time with them. Look, we all go through stages in life. There are times where, man, I'll tell you, we've been on the mountaintop and it's a wonderful time. You wish you could stay there forever and then you know something hits and it's hard and it's difficult. It's chaotic. But even in the chaos, you can still be a life giver. Because Christ gave you life. The question becomes... Are we people that encourage or discourage people? Do people get built up, or do they drown when they're around us? Here, let me lift you up. You're better than I am. I care about you more than myself. Oh, if only people cared about me. If only people noticed my problems. You you choose which one you want to be choice is up to you. Because I'm telling you, it's very easy for us to get into a self-pity party. There are certain weeks I go through, I literally will preach my heart on a Sunday Sunday, and Monday morning hits, I'm going, I don't even know if that sermon connects with anybody. And I get into this utter self-pity party and I have to go read the word and go, all right, David, snap me out of this here in Psalms. Here's the reality is, When people are around us, I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Do they want to pursue God more or less? When they're around us, do they want to pursue God more or less? When they're around us, do they care more for fellowship in the church or less? Do we encourage people to fellowship more with the church or less? Do we isolate them? Do we pray more and complain less or no? Are we known by the amount we pray or the amount we complain? That's a big one. Facebook tells us otherwise, right? I'll tell you where my problems are. Very easy, man. I'll tell you, it's very easy to just post something out there that I know I'm frustrated with. And I'm going to admit something right now they probably haven't admitted publicly, but I will. There are certain leaders that I pray for in our government that I'm frustrated with. I don't like a lot of the things that they do. I pray for them. God works on me. I check my attitude. I I check the way that he's he's taught me to, to pray for the people. And then the next day I have that same struggle and I have to do it all over again. Because it's that overwhelming and frustrating. These are some of the ways, there are many other ways, but these are just some of the ways that we can cause others to stumble. We might not even realize it. What's interesting is Jesus proceeds to warn about the dangers of not cutting off those things that cause us to sin. He actually mentions it in Matthew 18. Here's the thing, if you are a disciple, you need to remember this. A disciple is to be disciplined. A disciple is to be disciplined. That means you need to have structure. You need to understand what you stand for and what you stand against. The very warning of hell mentioned here in the text is a means for the disciple of Jesus Christ to take seriously the warning that Jesus lays out there. This is not one of those, I've got my hellfire insurance, I'm good, I don't need to worry about any of the stuff Jesus is saying here. Oh, you do need to worry. All of us need to worry, because hell is real. And it's the very warning of Scripture that keeps us in the faith. It's the very thing that God uses throughout the book of Hebrews, throughout the book of the, all the books of the New Testament, to keep the believer faithful to him. They're not empty threats, believer. No, you and I don't lose our salvation. We're secure in Christ. But that security in Christ means that we live differently because we are regenerate. Listen to what Spurgeon says on this text. Now say, heart, do you put away from yourself that which God hates? Hating it because he hates it. Not so much because your fellow Christians dislike it, or because the public judgment would go against it. But do you hate evil because it is detestable in the sight of God? If so, then you have a clear mark that you love God. And you should be thankful for the grace which has put your heart into such a temper. Spurgeon nails it right there. If you and I hate sin as passionately as we say we do, then we're going to cut certain things off. There are certain things that you should eliminate from your habitual practice every day that you know hurt your walk with God. You know what that also might be? Certain people you need to stop talking to as much people that cause you to stumble you probably don't want to be around as much you're not being a pharisee by saying i want to walk holy before god the problem with our culture today now people that want to walk close to god are looked as pharisees because they have certain standards that they hold to that maybe others don't there's a lot of there's a lot of honor in respecting god enough to go i know i stumble in this area i'm staying away from it completely I won't be around this because I know it'll cause me to stumble. The problem with us is we look at everybody else's sin and think that those are the sins that we need to worry about because everybody else's sin is worse than ours. What's the real sin that you have to struggle with? What's the real internal thing that you've actually asked God, forgive me, Father? In fact, when was the last time you asked for forgiveness? Or did you just kind of assume that it's there? Did you ask for forgiveness at all this last week, or was everything just a prayer around the meal? We're just going to say grace, right? It's all about grace. We don't need to worry about sin. We don't need to ask for forgiveness on anything. We've done nothing wrong, right? It's all covered under the blood. Why is 1 John there? If you don't confess sin, why is it there? Why are you not confessing sin? Why am I not confessing sin? Why is that some odd thing for us to do sometimes? What, have we arrived? Anybody right near Jesus right now? Everybody out that standard already? Ask yourself the question, what was the last time you repented and confessed sin? You said, look, I need to change my mind. This is wrong. I haven't even thought of that before. God convicts you, and you do something about it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you change. Number four, the admonition. For everyone, verses 49 through 50, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Here's what's interesting, believer. The idea here is that both believers and non-believers are tested with fire, if you will. And salt is to have flavor, else it is purposeless. It's worthless. If salt does not have saltiness, it's worthless. Salt was used to keep meat from going bad and to prevent decay. Just as we don't want to lose our saltiness, we need to maintain a close relationship with God so we can be the preservative in society and to help prevent the decay. Just as Jesus is the light, he calls us to be that light as well. We will have saltiness if we are connected to him. So what are we to do if we have this quality of saltiness in our lives? We're to live in peace with one another. In fact, here's what's interesting. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, I want to read this text, and and, and really hear the local churches in mind. Look at what he says. He says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. You know the greatest place that there should be the most peace between people? The local body of Christ. You know what's sad? Many times it's the one with the most war. So in conclusion, I just want to ask a simple question. Very simple. How is your service? How is your service? Do you just neglect to serve others and think that they're there actually to serve you? Do you think that God is ultimately to serve you because you somehow deserved it? You did something years ago? And he owes you one? It's amazing how many of us think that based on things in the past, we deserve something today. Do you look out for yourself first and what you can get out of something as you serve others? If we're not careful, we serve with a selfish heart and don't even realize it. We serve others with really a deception that we've fallen into. What am I getting out of this? Do you serve because you feel guilty if you don't? I know a lot of us fall into this trap. Well, I'm just going to serve because, you know, I'm going to feel bad if I don't. I'm going to be up at night, and it's just not going to feel good. I'm not going to be able to go to sleep tonight because I didn't serve. I didn't do something. Remember, you don't serve because you really just desire to serve. You serve many times because you feel guilty, and that's not a good thing. That's dangerous, believer. If we serve because we feel guilty, so many things in our lives we're going to do for the wrong reason. We should desire to be last and a servant of all. We don't just feel guilty about it. You serve, and this should be your reason, because Jesus Christ gave up everything for you, and you can't help but serve others. You can't help it. I've been giving so much, I want to give so much. You don't care what the world takes from you, they took even more from Christ and you understand that. They took his very life. You're willing to serve if it means losing everything. Because you know Jesus lost everything for you. You're willing to give your life.